0: I am grateful for our partnerships with other churches. Uh, I had made mention to, I think it was Phil back here uh, a few weeks ago, ran into him in the Scotts Hill office and uh, had made mention of the fact that uh, this building was being sold and we didn't know uh, how that was going to impact us in the days ahead, but we anticipated Uh, it meaning another move for us, and uh, he had passed that word along to Dodd. As soon as Dodd heard, he picked up the telephone and called me. He said, what can we do to help? Um, He said, our facility is available for y'all for Sunday afternoon and evenings, if that will help you. Uh, He said, anything that we can do to help you. Uh, And I asked him even then, I asked him if their fellowship hall was in use on Sunday mornings, uh, and it is, and they have bible studies uh, several Bible study classes that go on in there, but i 'm confident today that had they not had that going on uh, and if they had not needed that space for Sunday morning, that he would have made that available that's the kind of uh, uh, that's the kind of partnership and uh, and the way they love us and care for us, and I'm grateful for that we're not praying for them just for that reason, but uh, we do pray for uh, these pastors and these churches because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and they are shepherds that are seeking to to guide and lead their church families. And as we mentioned, uh, even today, through uh, loss, I do want to uh, extend my invitation to you today to uh, uh, to join us at four o'clock over at Freedom and Fellowship Hall uh, for our members' meeting, and and then uh, to join us in a uh, uh, in a meal together. Uh, we always look forward to getting together and just spending some time with each other and encouraging each other and catching up, and, uh, and we'll do that again today, and I look forward to it. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, today we're beginning our series for Matthew's Gospel. Uh, our, our plan uh, is for the next 20 weeks, really 21 with the exception of one week, uh, to Uh, give attention uh, to this gospel. Uh, We'll conclude this series uh, on July 10th, uh, Lord willing. Um, Of course, those of you who are familiar with Matthew, you know there are 28 chapters, so you already know that in 20 weeks uh, we won't even be dealing with a chapter a week. Um, And that's okay, Uh, but we are going to endeavor to give uh, some specialized attention to Matthew Uh, And we're going to do it in the way that Matthew has written this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, and it's kind of divided up into seven sections. So I want to go ahead and give you those sections so as you are reading along through Matthew, as we're studying Matthew together, uh, that you can give attention to these sections and and have them noted. Um, You'll look in Matthew's gospel, and we'll just flip through those pages, but uh, chapters one through four. Are somewhat of an introduction. Uh, they give us uh, an understanding uh, from, uh, from Matthew's, and I want to say his point of view, but his point of view brought to him by the Holy Spirit, his point of view uh, regarding who Christ is. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. Uh, and then there are five teaching sections in Matthew, and I want to give you the beginning and endings of those uh, because that will help you and we'll go ahead and make a note now. Matthew is not written in chronological order. So in other words, the happenings and the things that take place in the life of Jesus as Matthew records them are not in chronological order. They are very much intended to be communicated to us and for us to receive them and for his audience to receive them in the context I believe of these uh, these kind of sections of teaching so uh, in chapter 5 in beginning in verse 1 and we know that as the Sermon on the Mount through chapter 7 and verse 28 we will find the first section of teaching and we know that it concludes because in chapter 7 and verse 28 we hear this and we'll hear this repeated by the way throughout the course of Matthew and when Jesus finished this these sayings. In other words, when he had finished this sermon, and that ends that first section of teaching. And then beginning in chapter 8 and verse 1, uh, then we begin to hear uh, Jesus uh, begin another uh, series of teachings, and uh, it'll conclude in chapter 11 and verse 1. We hear Uh, Another concluding statement, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples. Now understand that as you read Matthew and you look at these sections of teaching... You're going to move from place to place geographically. And you're going to see miracles and read about the accounts and the narratives of miracles. Uh, but there is, a, there is an, an, an overarching theme in those sections of teaching. So when I say we're going to give specific attention, kind of specified attention to Matthew's gospel, we're going to look at it in the context of what's being taught in those particular sections. So beginning in chapter 11 and verse 2, uh, you'll pick up on the third section of teaching And it will end in chapter 13 and verse 53. We read, and when Jesus had finished these parables. So there is another definite break in those teachings. And then beginning in verse 54 of chapter 13, we pick up with the beginning of that section. And it will conclude in chapter 19 and verse 1, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, and then he goes to a different place, so it ended, and then that fifth section of teaching begins there in verse 2 of chapter 19, and it concludes in chapter 23, no, excuse me, chapter 26 and verse 1. And when Jesus finished all these sayings. And then the last part of the book of Matthew, in other words, the 26th, 27th, and 28th chapter deals with uh, the arrest, the crucifixion, uh, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, at the very end, uh, we know we have what we understand as the Great Commission. But that'll be the way that we will give attention to Matthew. We'll look at these sections of teaching. Uh, and we will uh, attend them accordingly. Uh, we mentioned Matthew wasn't, is not laid out chronologically. Um, but he, like John, begins with looking at the origin of Jesus. And we're going to look at that in just a few minutes. But John begins that origin in heaven. Uh, he says, uh, and we understand that, he begins that origin uh, in heaven, Matthew begins it on earth as it relates to his humanity. So John deals with the divinity of Christ uh, in his origin, Matthew deals with the humanity of Christ, um, but Matthew's gospel is just as important and Maybe some have said maybe even more important. I won't say more important. I don't think there's any, uh, any degree of importance when we begin to deal with the gospel. But remember, this is Matthew's gospel. It is a gospel. It's not a letter. Uh, it's uh, not just a book of history. It's not just some, some random thoughts about Jesus. It is a gospel. It is an argument that is laid out to tell us who Jesus is and what he uh, is about. Uh, We don't know the audience necessarily of Matthew. Uh, All commentators have some idea of the audience of the individual Gospels. The only Gospel that we have that we know for sure who the intended audience was is the Gospel of Luke. Luke says that he writes to Theophilus. Uh, we don't hear that from John, we don't hear it from Mark, and we certainly don't hear it from Matthew. Though uh, everyone, commentators kind of think that Matthew was written to, uh, to Jews and to Hebrews. And I think we're going to read and find as we work through Matthew uh, that it does have very much a Jewish flavor. Does that mean that it's not for us? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that Matthew's original audience, it's clear, uh, had at least some kind of an understanding of the Old Testament because Matthew appeals to the Old Testament. And you normally appeal to and draw back on things that people are familiar with if you're trying to make a point, and it seems that he does. And that is the reason why we see so much of that in Matthew. But Matthew has a very clear purpose. And I want you to get this. Go back to chapter 1 and I want us to look at this purpose. We'll talk about it more detail all the way through Matthew, but I just want you to understand that Matthew makes it clear what he is writing about. And if you will, look in verse 21. And this is a word that is coming from an angel to Joseph in a dream. And in verse 21, The angel is telling Joseph she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And this is the purpose of Matthew. This is the purpose of the gospel. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Not for us to have our best life now necessarily in the way that a lot of people think about our best life. It is to save us from sin. Save His people from their sin. And Matthew will show us all along the way that he is concerned about salvation. He's concerned about conversion. He's concerned about people turning to Christ and trusting in Him. Uh, there's some other things that he intentionally deals with and you'll pay attention to and we will make note of as we work through this text together. But he's also worried about sanctification. Not just the conversion, but the ongoing work of sanctification. And we know this because when we read the Sermon on the Mount here in just a few weeks and begin to work through that, that is very much a, a, a statement, a sermon about and for sanctification. Uh, Matthew also gives attention to issues as they relate to the church, as it, mean, as it applies to uh, forgiveness and church discipline and those things. Matthew is very concerned uh, about those things and points those out. We also know that Matthew speaks to us a lot about evangelism. We only have to read the passages, and I've read through Matthew over and over again, but we only have to read the passages that uh, point us to Jesus sending out His disciples. And then in the very end, we go to the very end of Matthew and the Great Commission, and what do we find? We find that there is a very direct statement in Matthew concerning the necessity by God's design for evangelism. So Matthew speaks to us about those things. But he also tells us about other parts of ministry. And we've discussed those here. In Matthew 25, he talks to us about mercy ministry. So we have evangelism and we have mercy ministries that are tied together in Matthew. All of these things help us understand who we are, what we're about, our conversion, the sanctification, uh, the ongoing work of God and mission and ministry in the life of the church. And then, as we mentioned, Matthew concludes with, uh, and we all know this, what we understand as the Great Commission. So he begins and says, Jesus came to save His people from their sins. And in the end, He commissions The disciples, not Matthew, but Jesus commissions his disciples to go into all the world and do what? And to teach the things that he has taught, to evangelize, to baptize for the purpose of conversion, teaching for the purpose of making disciples, sanctification for that ongoing work to continue. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. For the next few minutes, what I want us to do uh, is to look at the first part of Matthew, chapter 1. And I want us to consider this uh, as Matthew is communicating. As the Holy Spirit is communicating through Matthew, who is Jesus? So let's listen to the text with that in mind. Who is Jesus? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadad and Amenadad the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah and Solomon the father of Rehoboam and Rehoboam the father of Abijah and Abijah the father of Asaph and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of uh, Abiud and Abiud the father of uh, Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of uh, Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of uh, Maton, and Maton, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon uh, to Christ. Fourteen generations. So who is Jesus? Well, let's just look at who Matthew says. And we're just going to go down the list. First, Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. First, we read that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. By virtue of Him being addressed as the Messiah, we have to deal with that. And we have to look at that first and foremost. Now I'm stating it here, I'm stating it here because that is the order in which it is given, although we recognize that Matthew doesn't dwell with his Messiahship in great detail at this point. He is just stating who he is, and I think with good reason he is dealing with that because of his purpose and his intent and his writing. But I didn't want to bypass that. I can't bypass that because that is who we're talking about. Uh, Matthew's intent is not to talk about at this point in time his, his messiahship in that Jesus is the Christ, the sent one. He's not trying to lay it out like John and tie him back so much to heaven. What he is trying to do is to tie him to earth. And we know that because he gives us a genealogy that is connected directly with the descendants that are leading up to something specific. And we'll see that in a moment. We know that the triune God has no beginning or end. So when he's dealing with the genealogy, we know that, and Matthew knows that. This is true of Jesus, that Jesus has no beginning or end. He's the Son of God. We learned that from John. Jesus, the Son of God, was in the beginning with God. He was God, and it was by Him and through Him that all things were created. And Matthew knows this. So what is he trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate primarily that in his humanity he has a legal right to the throne of David. We know this because David is the centerpiece of this genealogy and it just continues to flow all the way through where David is rehearsed over and over again. You can look at it and we'll look at it more in just a minute. He has a legal right to the throne of David. That leads us to The second thing that Matthew says, look at what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who's the Son of God. Second, he is the Son of David. Jesus is the Son of David. It's clear that Matthew is emphasizing this in his genealogy. I've mentioned it a moment ago. David is mentioned over and again from the opening statement all the way to when we get down to uh, verse 20. Uh, Even in this dream that's coming from the angel, in this word that is coming from the angel to Joseph, what do we hear? But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, who? Son of David. So at the heart of all of this, David is being emphasized. He is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David we see that the Davidic line throughout the course of this genealogy is followed. And he is telling us, and he's telling his audience this, and I want you to catch this, because this is going to be important throughout Matthew. He is telling us that Jesus is the one in whom we find the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to David in the Davidic covenant. That's important for us. In other words, Jesus is king and there is a kingdom and king Jesus and this kingdom are being put in the forefront and put in the spotlight. Well what was his promise to David? Well let's look at it together. If you have your Bibles there turn to 2nd Samuel chapter 7 beginning in verse 8. David has David wants to build the temple. God speaks to Nathan the prophet and says to Nathan take this message to David and this was part of the message that comes from God through Nathan the prophet Nathan to David now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David he's speaking God is speaking to Nathan thus says the Lord of hosts I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel And I've been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. And be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he's pointing specifically to Solomon, and we know this, but just continue continue reading along here. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you before." and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's what he told David. Now, did God mean it? Yeah, he meant it. He meant that. His throne would be established forever, and that this kingdom would be made sure forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. He is the eternal king of this eternal kingdom. As I said before, we'll look at this even more as we work through Matthew because we will have kingdom parables, kingdom teachings pointing to Christ's kingdom. The king has come to save his people, but not from the tyranny of Rome, Or any other worldly government. He's come to save them and to deliver them from their sin. And that is why when we read about him as being king. And we read about his kingdom. We need to understand the nature of this king's work. And his purpose. And that is to establish a kingdom. And his kingdom will be established with the inhabitants of that kingdom. Being those whom he has saved from their sin. I make this comment, and this is not a political statement, but we've often wrongly tied nationalism and patriotism to Christianity. And this should remind us here when it says that Jesus came to save them and deliver them from their sin, this should remind us. Jesus isn't just America's Savior, and God isn't just America's God. The gospel is a message of the good news that Jesus has come to save us from our sins and its enslavement, not the bondage that is brought on by governmental takeovers. The freedom found in the gospel for sure speaks to and points to an absolute freedom in the kingdom of God. But that is first and primarily a deliverance from sin, our own sin, not someone else's but our own sin. And then somewhat in a secondary way I believe that it's the sin of others because Christ's death and his resurrection dealt with all sin. It's eternally dealt with. So he is the son of David and heir to the throne and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And we know this because Matthew continues to point to the fact that there are others who know this. So turn over to chapter 2. Now we're going to we're going to backtrack here. Okay, we're not going we're not skipping his birth or at least the he really doesn't deal with his birth. He just talks about it. But let's look in chapter 2 in verse 1. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, "Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. This is interesting, isn't it? Men from the east, non-Jewish, are coming to Jerusalem and saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes and people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him. that I too may come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, it rose, went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Here in chapter 2, we hear that again, Jesus is this king, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant we read that the Magi, these wise men, or this delegation of powerful men, they were well studied, probably politically connected. They had a lot of power, more power than we even recognize here in this text. And they traveled to Jerusalem to do what they were known for. And you know what that is? To identify royalty. To identify kings and make them Kings, in the sense that they called out individuals and they established them and made them kings. Thus, their name is kingmakers. Accounts in history point to the fact that maybe one of the reasons why Herod was so concerned uh, was that 40 years earlier, the Parthians had come into Palestine and had run the Romans out. In the course of that, Herod's brother, was killed, Herod fled and went to Rome. And he appealed to Mark Anthony to make him king over the Jews. But while Mark Anthony in Rome was making him king over the Jews, the kingmakers had come to Jerusalem and they had called another individual out. Guess for what? To be king of the Jews. After Herod's appeal to Mark Anthony, he also asked him, Would you send back forces to run out the Parthians uh, out of Palestine? And Mark Anthony did. And they came and they ran the Parthians out. And in the course of that, Herod's throne was seemingly established. But he is king over what? He doesn't have a people. He doesn't have a people. So when these kingmakers show up at his doorstep, Tell us where the king of the Jews is. All of a sudden, he's thinking back, 40 years earlier this happened, and somebody else was made king, and I was having to come back and take it. What's going to happen this time? Why is all this important? It is important because these kingmakers had been instructed by God through the scriptures through hearing stories about this king that was to come, remember they had access to God's Word. About 150 years earlier, the Old Testament had been translated into what? Into Greek. These men were able to speak Greek. They were well-learned men. They had studied the Scriptures, and they had studied the prophecies of the Scriptures. It wasn't just that a star was there and all of a sudden this group of astrologers headed out and thought that, oh, well, there's a star, there's a king. Well, there's got to be some kind of a connection there. The point is, is that they went to where the king was. God brought people to the king who would not have known about him otherwise, except that God... Revealed to them that he was the king. And they knew who he was king over. He was not king over the Egyptians being born in Palestine, in Jerusalem and around that area. They said the king of the Jews. And they came and they acknowledged him. And they paid homage to him. Now go back to chapter 1. So we hear that Jesus is the son of God. We hear that he is the son of God. Of David. He has the legal right to this throne. But we also hear something else. Notice there, he is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Matthew makes sure that he communicates Jesus as being the son of Abraham. I want to ask you a question why do you suppose that's so important? Why was that so important? We start with David. David seems to be in the middle of everything. But he goes back and points back to the fact that he is the son of Abraham. He doesn't say that he's the son of Adam when we go, and look, go to Luke and we look at the genealogy of Jesus. It traces him all the way back to Adam. But here, Matthew pointedly communicates that he is the son of Abraham. It's important because Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises associated with the Abrahamic Covenant. So he fulfills the Davidic covenant. He fulfills the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now what was that covenant? Well, look in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You know, I've told you before, if you ever lose track in the Old Testament and you wonder what's going on, go back to this text. This will clear it up for you because it's all tied back to this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, catch this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Notice that. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How did the blessing begin with Abraham? What was Abraham looking for? He was just looking for a child. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for one child. Now we know the story of Abraham, and we know that there were, all, there were attempts to make other replacements, but there was one child, and it began, and we hear that in verse 2 of Matthew's Gospel. Abraham was the father of who? Isaac. Abraham was the father of Isaac, the covenant child. Well, what happened in Abraham and Isaac's life? Well, Genesis chapter 22, we can read about it. You may want to turn there, but I'll just reference it. God told Abraham to take Isaac, the covenant child, and offer him as a sacrifice to God there on Mount Moriah. And it is there that we have the picture of God providing the sacrifice that he required. And it's also the place where we see that God provided the sacrifice. Not Isaac this time. Not the covenant child this time. Not the completion of the covenant this time. But a ram that was caught in the thicket. And it's there that we see that Abraham's faith was demonstrated again. His obedience was demonstrated. But we have a picture there pointing to another covenant son who would in fact become the sacrifice required for the sin of God of those who would place their faith in Him, Jesus came to save His people from their sin. The covenant child, the fulfillment of the covenant coming. So He fulfills the Davidic covenant, He fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. But what else do we hear? Well, we read it a moment ago in verse 21. Jesus is the Savior of his people. Notice this in the announcement that comes by the angel of the Lord to Joseph. When Joseph was in this dilemma, after he found out uh, that uh, this, uh, this, this, his bride-to-be, uh, really his bride already, just not consummated, uh, was expecting a child, and he knew that he had not known her, So his assumption would be what? That she had had relations with another man outside of their marriage covenant. And the scriptures go on to tell us that because he was concerned about her, Joseph being a just just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things on how he was going to quietly put her away so as not to bring her shame the angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream and told him listen what he said joseph son of david do not fear to take mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the holy spirit she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Who are Jesus' people? That would be a logical question, wouldn't it? He will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Well, let me ask you, who are your people? That's the way we used to refer to our grandparents and great-grandparents and even our family members. Now, who are your people? Well, let's look at the ancestors of Jesus for just a minute and those who are around him. And we've already looked at it in the genealogy. We can at least answer the question by who are his people? Well, one, we know that he is the son of David and he is the son of Abraham and at least this list in the genealogy that traces not every piece of his genealogy by the way it's broken up into three sections 14 generations in each section but there's really more than 14 generations Matthew is very purposeful in what he writes and puts down you say well why 14 I think it's more than speculation but Jews had a way of putting a numerical value to the consonants uh, in their alphabet. When we look at the consonants in David's name, what are those consonants? For those of you who are good in grammar words, DVD, okay? Well, D was given a numerical value of four by the Hebrews, V was given a numerical of 6, value of 6, and then another D was 4. So 4 plus 6 is 10, plus 4 is what, trip? 14. There you go. And that was their logic behind, and that was Matthew's logic in writing it, and the Jews would know that. They would know that. The point being is that he doesn't trace every bit of it, but let's look at what we do see about what is in the genealogy to get some kind of an idea of who Jesus' people are. Who are are His people? Well, first we notice that Matthew is intent on naming at least four women and referring to one. So let's go back and look at the women. There's Tamar, okay? Tamar, who was the mother of a set of twins, uh, Perez and Hezron, Zerah, okay, He names Rahab that we know was a Canaanite. We'll look at that in a moment. He names Ruth. He refers to Bathsheba, but he doesn't call her by name, but he refers to her as Uriah's wife. And then he calls out Mary. So at least we know that in the course of this genealogy, Jesus' people includes men and women. But what else do we notice about them? There's a whole lot of bad folks there. A whole lot of sinful folks. In fact, the centerpiece of the genealogy is David. And we know that David, a man after God's own heart, struggled with sin in his life. But so did his son Solomon. And so did Abraham. And so did Rehoboam. Remember the story of Solomon's son Rehoboam? They come to him, the people of Israel come to him and said, listen, you need to lighten the load. You need to lighten the load on us. And he said, oh no. He said, I'm going to put it on heavier and harder and thicker than my daddy ever thought about. Which created a split in the kingdom. So the very people that some of these men were supposed to be caring for, shepherding well and loving, they were actually harmful to them. These are the kinds of people that are in, in, in this genealogy. We look at Manasseh, who was said to be at one time one of the worst kings and had turned away from God and did not lead the people to God. And on and on we see this, so we recognize that their women were included, but they're sinful people, and there's also sinful women. What do we find out about Judah? Judah? Well, Judah sought pleasure in prostitutes. So he goes out to find a prostitute. And because he had not kept his word to his daughter-in-law, who was a widow, Judah's son had passed away, she presents herself as a prostitute, and through the course of that relationship, she conceives and she has Perez and Zerah. Not a pretty picture in the course of our family tree, is it? In Jesus' family tree. Well, what about Rahab? What do we know about her? She was a Canaanite prostitute. What do we know about Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. What do we know about Uriah's wife, Bathsheba? We know about the relationship. All of this points to, in the course of this, that it included women, and it included sinners. And what else did it include? Well, we've already mentioned it. It included people that were non-Jews. Matthew, writing this, with all this Jewish influence, makes sure that in the course of And he didn't fabricate this, by the way. But he didn't cover it up. He didn't try to hide it. I've heard some stories of my people. I could tell you some of them. Not so good. Not so good. That's what Jesus' people were like. But there's another way to answer who are Jesus' people. And that's to consider who are the people who become His people. Who are the people who can become his people? Who are the people that come into this king, eternal king? Who are the people that come into Jesus' kingdom? Well, we've looked at the genealogy, but we don't have to go any farther than Matthew and be no more specific than Matthew and turn to Matthew 28 and 19 and we begin to find out who these people are who are coming to the kingdom. What does he say? Jesus himself said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all nations, all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So his kingdom includes all nations. This is the very reason that Jesus would say, And it's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 16, and I have other sheep. And he was talking specifically to the Jews and the Jewish leaders. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd was that reason that Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, now catch this, Okay? remember he's Abraham's son and if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise I guess it really is true for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life I guess it is true when John in his prologue wrote, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, to them He gave the right to become children of God, heirs to the kingdom, a part of the kingdom of God, where Jesus is King. Jesus came to save His people. Who are His people? His people are those who trust in Him. That could be you. That could be me. That could be anyone who would be in here today. That could be anyone living today. That could be anyone who lived before Christ. Anyone who lived during the time of Christ. Anyone who lived after Christ. Who trusted in God. How do we know this? Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see, if you're a sinner and you'll trust in Jesus, then you are the people of his kingdom. And you are his people. I want to conclude with this. Let's read on, picking up in verse 21. chapter 1 the angel says she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew deliberately brings us to this point. The fulfillment of both the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant was God's promise to make a people, to secure a people, to shepherd a people, to love a people, to bring a people close to Him. We see this in the inclusion of the deportation of Israel. Right in the middle of the genealogy. What do we hear? Go back and look at it. It said in verse 11, And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. Why mention that? Why mention that? And after the deportation to Babylon. Why mention that? Because that time of separation is significant. But God was continuing to work His plan. It looked to them like the throne of David had ended. Everybody was looking at it and there was no king. There were no people. They had been overrun. There was a separation from that covenant. A separation from God. The years spent in Egypt were significant. The years spent wandering in the wilderness were significant. The deportation was significant. Why? Because all of these times, all of these moments, all of these years pointed to man's separation from God because of his sin. But here's what's incredible, and this is what I want you to get. God in every instance delivered. In every instance, He brought them back home. In every instance, He restored them. Oh, they would wander again, but He would bring them back because He intended them. To be close to Him and close with Him. He intended to be with them. Doesn't the Garden of Eden point us to that? Have you ever just just sat for an afternoon and thought about what it would have been like each evening for God to come and to visit with Adam Not that he needed to catch up on what Adam had done during the course of the day, but just to spend time with this one that he had created in his image. And then that dreadful day that sin came and there was no longer that fellowship. But here in Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, The Son of God, He comes. And Matthew's point, I believe very much, and we'll talk about it later, was not so much to point to the virgin birth, though He does, and it's significant. And we'll talk about that. It's at the ground of all of this, and foundational to all of this. But what is emphasized here is that this is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus comes to man. And for those who trust Him, they are never apart, never separated from God again. Did you know that? That if you've trusted Christ, you are never separated from God again. Not another deportation. You may struggle, but no separation Because He is in you and you are in Him and you cannot be divided or torn asunder. Isn't that what Matthew closes with? Look in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. He makes this point in chapter 1, God with us and then in the very last phrase that he quotes Jesus. And behold, this is Jesus. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. To the end of what age? Well, to the end of history as we know it. Well, does it end there? Well, no. No, it doesn't. It only begins there. Because what we hear that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica propels us beyond the end of history as we know it. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ Will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And what? And what? And so we will always be with the Lord. The Son of God, the Son of David the son of Abraham, Emmanuel, God with us. How does this bear upon us? We ought to be grateful that God has made His work in Christ known to us. That's what the Gospel does. It comes to us and says, this is good news. Listen. That's what the Gospel of Matthew does. This is good news for you. Jesus has come to save His people from their sin. So we should be grateful. We should be grateful that God has not left us in our sin. He didn't stay in heaven. He transcended the time that He made and He came to us to save us. And my goodness, shouldn't we be encouraged and comforted to know that God intends to be with us and us to be with him. He is intent on being with us, close to us, not removed from us, but intentionally and constantly involved, intimately. With us. A boonies going to come. And we're going to look at this. And I hope you see the table today. In light of who Jesus is. As Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has helped us see so that we can know Him